the book of Ezekiel. I don't know when the last time you heard a sermon on the book of Ezekiel. It's a fairly big chunk. I mean, David Clark, legendary effort last week, uh, getting to the heart of Jeremiah. Um, today, I, I worked through a meagre 48 chapters of, uh, of Ezekiel by comparison. Um, but uh, I'm going to get a little clicker here. But Ezekiel is a, uh, is, is a fascinating book, and I'm really looking forward to engaging with it uh, in a creative uh, way uh, today. I'm just going to dive basically straight in, because we've got a whole lot to cover today. Now, this word Ezekiel, some of you may know uh, people named Ezekiel, or maybe even Zeke. Uh, there's someone in my family who's named Zeke. It wasn't named after Ezekiel, but the name still actually has the same meaning, and it means God strengthens or it means strengthened by God. And, um, and this is what we get in the message of Ezekiel. Uh, for a little bit of context, uh, we're talking about um, 600 BC, uh, 597 to be precise. There was a rebellion in Babylon, um, and Ezekiel, oh, sorry, a rebellion against Babylon, what happened is uh, the, 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 Israel, uh, sorry, the nation of Israel attacked Babylon, and as a response to that rebellion, Ezekiel, who we're going to be talking about today, who was a priest, was among a large group of Judeans who were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So when we're talking about the book of Ezekiel, it's actually being written from Babylon, from this place of we have already been taken captive. Okay. Now, uh, the various dates in the book of Ezekiel suggest that he was around about 25 when he went into exile into, into Babylon. Sometimes we picture this guy with like this giant beard, like 25 years old is when he went into exile initially. Uh, and when he was 30, when he received his first kind of prophetic call, this prophetic vision, and, uh, and 52 um, at the time of his last vision. And, uh, and Ezekiel had this really confronting and uncomfortable role as a prophet. Um, and so his name, God strengthens, or strengthened by God, is very, very apt, okay? First of all, Ezekiel was going to need to be strengthened by God. Like, to actually fulfill his calling to do what he is going to do, he needs to be strengthened by God over and over again because this mandate and these instructions he, were, he, he was given were not an easy one. But this other kind of aspect on strengthened by God is kind of the heart of his message because his a role as a prophet was going to be strengthening a hurting people particularly when the temple in Jerusalem was ultimately destroyed. It hadn't happened at the beginning of Ezekiel, but by the end of it, it would be destroyed. And at that particular point, the message from Ezekiel was going to have to be this one that would strengthen a hurting and broken people. Now, if we want a little bit of a book overview, it actually takes a form that is similar to structure in structure to the book of Isaiah. There's this kind of warning against those uh, already, from those already in exile that Jerusalem will fall. Uh, then there's this set of kind of woes or prophecies against nations. Then the thing that has been predicted actually happens, that is Jerusalem is destroyed. And then out of that comes these prophecies of hope and salvation in the later chapters. Now, rather than kind of working through the what of this, like I did with the book of Isaiah. Today, I want to start by talking about the how. And my question is, how do you communicate to a people when they aren't listening? 
I mean, I'm sure you've maybe experienced this, maybe if you're in a vocation as a teacher when you have students who aren't listening, maybe you're a parent and you've had times when your kids aren't listening, maybe you've been trying to give feedback to a boss and they're not listening, and if you do this over and over and over again and you simply come up against walls, like what do you do next? What Ezekiel was called to do was to confront a people who weren't listening. Now, he might take something, and he would take something, something deeply significant that like represents commitment and uh, a story. And he would take uh, this image, and he would use this image in a dramatic way. He would take something common but significant, and then he'd do something like really dramatic with it. And then if that wasn't far enough, he would take it even further. Just in case you think I'm joking, by the way. And you take it the next level even further. Now, just in case you think my marriage is in trouble, don't worry. It's in here. It's Megan's idea too. But he would do these things, right? He'd take something of significance and value that carried story, and he'd do something dramatic to shock people, shock them into thinking differently. Shock them out of their, their position of security. Shock them out of their ignorance. And this is what the book of Ezekiel is. It's a book that is filled with shock and imagination to a people who weren't listening. They've been told over and over and over again that the trajectory that they were on was not going to deliver. In fact, it was going to destroy them, and yet they would not listen. And this is what Ezekiel did. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God used him to, to communicate this message in two very dramatic ways, confronting ways, ways that would shock the people in their thinking. And we're going to look at an example of each of these. The first thing that Ezekiel did, and what you'll see in the book of Ezekiel, is a whole bunch of street theatre, which seems strange for a prophet, right? But if you look at Ezekiel, whether he wanted to be or not, he became a bit of a thespian, <laughs> He became a bit of an actor in the streets, right? Check this out. This is an instruction from Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Now, son of man, that's God speaking to Ezekiel, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. So this is what Ezekiel was called to do. Take this clay and then construct this city of Jerusalem. Then lay siege to it, which is him lying down and building up these little uh, kind of things that would ultimately attack Jerusalem. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. So in case you didn't fill that gap, that is for 390 days, Ezekiel is going to lie on his side, taking siege to this city of Jerusalem that he has constructed. 
Now, after you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days. I will tie you up with ropes so you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Wasn't that generous, God? Thank you for tying me up. I don't even really know how that works, but clearly God was wanting him to demonstrate something visibly shocking where people would walk out each day and there's Ezekiel again, laying siege. What day are we up to? 120. What day are we up to? 240. And you're stepping out there and going, is this guy legit? Is this guy really a prophet? But he's lying there and, and it's like, I don't know if you want this kind of sermon. It would be a long one, right? But there was this deep message that was going on. It continues. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Eat the food as though you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. Yeah, right? The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. So he's got this like dramatic street theater approach to communicate a message of what God is about to do. You know, sometimes we need to see something confronting to get our attention. Sometimes we need to see something confronting daily to get our attention. Sometimes we need to see something confronting daily that really, really smells to get our attention. And this is what God was doing. Not a fun job for Ezekiel, but God needed to get their attention. And by the way, God, uh, Ezekiel does protest this a little bit. He says, no, sovereign Lord, I've never defiled myself from my youth until now. I've never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No impure meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I'll let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human excrement. Isn't that a lovely accommodation from our Heavenly Father? There's a whole sermon in that too. You know, it may not seem like much. We, we often read our Bible and we see a whole bunch of words. and Maybe we see a miracle. But what will it take for God to get our attention? Would it take someone daily doing something confronting and the, and the smell of that to finally wake us up to the trajectory we are on? God knew that that is what these people need. And that's right there in these early chapters of Ezekiel. Now, the other thing that we find that kind of confronts and challenges and stirs imagination, again, this is not so much the what but the how, is that Ezekiel uses this uh, type of writing called apocalyptic literature. Now, many of you will be familiar with apocalyptic literature. It's found in the book of Revelation. Uh, that's where we often talk about it, but it's also found in the book of Daniel and, and, a, and a bunch of other books, Zechariah in particular, and also in Ezekiel. Now, apocalyptic literature often takes these incredible kind of images and forms and symbols to convey hope to their present day. I, I know that we often talk about apocalyptic, about the future, you know, an unveiling of the future, but apocalyptic literature, the actual type of writing, is about conveying hope to the present day day. In fact, the word apocalyptic simply means to uncover or to reveal. And so Ezekiel, again, is actually talking to the people about their current world and their current situation. Now, check this out. See how this might confuse, provoke, or stir imagination. 
This is right at the beginning. In my 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Right? Verse 15, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. And as they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome and all four rims were full of eyes all around. Weird, right? But I like this line. Their rims were high and awesome. (laughs) I mean, this kind of language might seem like really foreign to us, right? Um, But at the same time, God was trying to communicate something through Ezekiel. And it was particularly, and we'll kind of come back to this later, particularly around this understanding of where the presence of God dwelled. Because the understanding at the time was that the presence of God uh, dwelled within the Holy of Holies in in the temple in Jerusalem, right? It was the Shekinah glory of God, that same glory that had been in the tabernacle as the people went through Exodus and then resided within the temple. And so while it might seem kind of foreign to us nowadays, the idea that a God or a deity was contained to a specific geographical location was deeply embedded within the cultural understanding of the time. And we're going to come back to this later because what we see even in some of this apocalyptic literature right from the beginning is we see a lot of wheels and we see a lot of eyes and they have deep messages within them. See, these messages that seem so foreign to us are so confusing but they are going to be needed, especially when Jerusalem falls and the temple is destroyed in chapter 33. And we'll be coming back to this. But I want to start, I suppose, just with this simple idea. What does it take for God to get your attention? Because this, in terms of the how of Ezekiel, is what he is doing. God is trying to use these kind of creative, confronting kind of images and words and drama in order to get our attention. I think sometimes as Christians, we can kind of just kind of go through the motions and I know I'm as guilty of this as anyone. And it's like, if God actually wants me to do something, like how hard does he have to push? How many times do I credit things to coincidence when I'm actually, is God actually provoking me and pointing me toward the thing that he wants me to do? Would it take a prophet lying there for like hundreds of days until it actually did a work in my heart where I actually started to believe that God had something in mind? a challenge, I think, for all of us. Maybe we don't give God enough credit for the ways, even the creative ways, that he is communicating. We're going to fast forward through to the next part of Ezekiel. Now, Jerusalem falls. There's been drama. There's been warnings. There's been prophecies against Judah and Israel. There's been prophecies against the nations. And then suddenly Babylon comes and the temple is destroyed. It is in ruins. And we hear this in Psalm 137. This is a psalm that would have been crafted by those who were in exile after the temple was destroyed. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs Our tormentors demanded songs of joy and they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord 
while in a foreign land. So they're sitting in Babylon and they're dealing this with brand new reality, that their temple no longer stands. The temple where the glory of God dwelled is in ruins. The Shekinah presence is gone. Where was their God? This is what we end up with in the middle of Ezekiel, this despair. And in these times of despair, we know that perhaps even the worst of our humanity comes out. We did a little series in the PM services a little while back on Psalms, and we talked about that Psalms aren't primarily like theological statements about God. They're actually more reflective of the human condition. Right? So as we read the Psalms, we read the human condition into them. We feel what they feel. I mean, this bitterness and this hurt rolls through this Psalm. We jump down to 7 to 9. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. There's history there, by the way. Edomites were hidden to the side in their rock walls, right? While Jerusalem fell, their brothers did not come to save them. Daughter, Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Ooh, you hear the fire in that? Is this theology? (laughs) Is this the human condition? Is this what emerges in those times of distress and pain and heartbreak? To a people whose homes had been destroyed and gutted, the way that they wanted to live has been done away with. They are weeping, hurting, bitter, vengeful, and yet helpless. And so if this nation, if this Jewish people were ever going to come back to the path and the role that God had called them to from the beginning, they were having to need to overcome their current circumstances. They're going to need to push through this exile and be empowered to choose the right in the middle of the wrong. And they're going to need strength. And what is the name of this book? Ezekiel. God will strengthen. See, they needed to know that the story isn't over. And we've got to make this personal again because it's so easy to treat this giant book as something that just happened in history. Oh, that's good to know. But this isn't just about what happened. This is about what happens to us. The times when we fail to, to, to heed God's warnings, when he, when he tries to get our attention and we still don't give him our attention. The times when we feel like we've got our life all together, then suddenly it falls apart. It might be that someone that we love passes away. It might be that we're betrayed by a, by a friend or a colleague and suddenly the kind of structures and the security that I once had and the trajectory I was once on is gone. Maybe I lost a job or I lost power or I lost a position and suddenly the security of what I knew and even who I knew God to be feels like it lies in ruins, right? This is Ezekiel. It's a confronting, necessary story. And the question becomes, what allows us to step out of our bitterness, to accept our circumstances, and to take down our harps from the poplar branches, right? And sing these songs of truth again. Because there's plenty of times in life when things don't go away, and we can sit by the rivers of Babylon, we can hang up our harps, and they will just hang there. And we'll remember the good old days. But God doesn't give up on his people. What does it look like to take down those harps? Well, Ezekiel employs the same thing that he did at the beginning. An image, a moment, something to shock us or to capture our imagination. 
And so in these later chapters of Ezekiel, we have these incredible images of hope. The first one is that of the shepherd, and I think it's beautiful, right? So from John there about Jesus being the good shepherd. There is no mistake that this is going on here. In verse uh, 11 and 12 and 15 to 16 of 34, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is after the, the temple is in ruins. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. Verse 15, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Now, just in case you're confused there, the sleek and the strong, if you look at the broader context, is referring to the religious authorities of the time, right? The ones who had not maintained the temple and who had essentially led the people toward this scattering. Now, whether or not it was recognized or realized at the time by its original healers, the way that Jesus would fulfill this promise as the good shepherd is undeniable. I mean, listen to the language. I myself, not an intermediary, not someone else, I myself will be the shepherd. Incarnation. The sleek and the strong I will destroy. What did Jesus do but come and challenge the religious authorities of the day, right? Jesus was embodying this prophetic piece of hope. And of course, I will shepherd the flock with justice. What is Christ's uh, uh, encouragement to us to pray, not my will, but, oh, sorry, that's on the cross too. Sorry, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So this image of the shepherd comes through Ezekiel and raises these people who are in this place of, of devastation and says, I will restore you. I will be present. And so when we are feeling scattered, when we are feeling lost, when we have felt like we've needed to hung up our harps, God is our shepherd. The other key image that comes through Ezekiel in 36, is that of the promise of the Spirit. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. Now again, to people who are in this place of utter despair, this promise of the Spirit was so significant. In the Old Testament, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, was just bestowed upon specific individuals at specific times, right? That was how it was understood. Some of the prophets got the Spirit. 
Even supernatural strength like Samson was an understood to be the Ruah HaKadosh, the Spirit of God for single people, for single times. But suddenly this promise isn't just for an individual, it is for all people. I will give you, plural, a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And this spirit was going to move people toward truth and conviction. This should not sound unfamiliar to us Christians, right? Pentecost, <laughs> Holy Spirit, right? So it's weird, we kind of get to Ezekiel, like what's got Ezekiel got to do with anything when it comes to our faith? We've got this incredible prophetic word around the good shepherd who would show up in human form, right? And be the one who draws the scattered flock in together and bring justice. And then we've got this image of the spirit being bestowed, not just single individuals, but on all people. Rebuilt and replanted. And it's no mistake that both of these promises reflect Genesis and Exodus. The Garden of Eden is literally referenced, right? And what was Moses who led people out of Egypt? He was a shepherd, right? Like there's no mistake here. God's intention has not changed for his people. They have strayed. They've gone down paths. There has been a refining process. They are bitter. They are sitting by the streams of Babylon and they cannot sing their songs, but God has not given up on them. His intention for them to be blessed, to be a blessing to all nations has never changed. And so for those who needed strength, Ezekiel speaks these words. Because apparently the story isn't over. There is a shepherd who searches. There is a spirit that leads all people. So through Ezekiel, we have this profound idea that apparently the story isn't over. Apparently God has not abandoned his people. Apparently God is not trapped in the ruins of the temple. See, right from the get-go, Ezekiel started with this imagery and this vision that would challenge people in their understanding of what the presence of God looked like, particularly in our times of despair. It turns out that the presence of God was not contained to a physical location. Remember? The rims of God were high and awesome. It seemed confusing back then, right? But suddenly we come full circle, right? From the beginning, before this tragedy struck, before they hung up their hearts, God was presenting himself in a form that would spur hope and fresh understanding. You see, this God that they believed in wasn't just contained to the Holy of Holies. This was a God who moves, and he moves in any direction that he wants. And these wheels, these rims that are high and awesome were covered in eyes. He sees all. Nothing surprises him. Nothing is beyond his gaze. These images were planted early on to spur hope for what was coming. This is a God who moves and sees. This is a God who is agile, for whom nothing can take him by surprise. God's presence was not trapped in its destroyed temple. God is not trapped for us in our painful story. And that's the rub for us, okay? We might not be sitting in Jerusalem and anticipating its destruction, 
But sometimes what we do is we have a particular image of how God operates. And then when things don't turn out the way that we plan, we assume that God was lost in that ruin. And yet, what does Ezekiel communicate? The rims of the presence of God were high and awesome. God is always on the move, and he's not trapped in your painful story. I think as Christians today, this is one of the biggest things that we can take out of this. Right? We've got moments of pain when things didn't go to plan, when we maybe feel bitter, maybe we feel vengeant, maybe we are singing that hymn or that psalm, right, like those who were in exile. But God is not trapped there. Wherever you're there is. God's promise was to be present with his people, to always be drawing them back and to placing the spirit of God within them. And that is the truth that we participate in today. And so there's always a risk that we end up living back there rather than the truth and the hope that Ezekiel presented those people with and that Christ reminds us of each and every day. And so for some people here today, as I wrap up, we need to heed the lessons of Ezekiel. Maybe God is trying to get your attention. And the question is, will you listen? Will you listen? Because he wants to get your attention for your good. But for other people, maybe we just need to be reminded that in the ruins, there is always a promise. A promise and hope that there is a God who is faithful. And that's what the book of Ezekiel is about. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, it's a confronting book because it's confusing God, I want to repent of the times when maybe you've been trying to get my attention, Lord, but I've failed to heed the warnings. God, help us to not to take you for granted, not just live in our own little world, forget our mandate and our calling, that we are blessed to be a blessing, that we are freed to free others because of our strength, but because of what you have done. And Lord, for those of us here who are carrying wounds, maybe we don't feel like we can sing songs on a Sunday. Maybe we feel like you have disappointed us in some way. Maybe we've left you behind in the ruins of a painful experience. I want to pray for hope and renewal. I want to pray that through your spirit, it does lead us, we would plant hope, a word, a conviction of shepherd and spirit to remind those who are hurting that the story is not over. It's never been over. So do a work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.